On this episode of AppTalk, we are joined by the Air Current Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer, to discuss the crash of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 and the subsequent grounding of the 737 MAX aircraft. We also get an update from the NTSB on the crash of Atlas Air Flight 3591 and an update on the closure of Pakistan's airspace to most flights. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and we are joined by the Air Currents Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer, to discuss the week's events. John, thank you so much for joining us again. It's very great to have you and your expertise back on the show. Always great to be with you guys. Thanks. Good to have you back, John. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Jason. So our nearly only story that we're going to talk about this week, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on it since we do have John and and we're going to use his historical knowledge and subject matter expertise to really dive into the crash of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 and the subsequent events that have taken place around the world over the past few days. We're recording this on 13 March in the evening uh, UTC time. And earlier in the afternoon, U.S. time, the U.S. FAA announced that all 737 MAX operating in the U.S. to and from the U.S. would be grounded. They were the last holdout of the regulators or authorities that still had uh, 737 MAX operators in the air following Canada's announcement earlier in the day. So as it stands now, all MAX, uh, 737 MAX 8 and 9 aircraft around the world once they land, they are no longer allowed to carry passengers. Right. And if you haven't been keeping too close to tabs on it, it's been quite the whirlwind to get to this point. It started, I believe, several days ago at this point with China being the first major country to ground the 737 MAX aircraft, both the 8 and the 9. And from there, it kind of ballooned to a hodgepodge of countries and regulators and airlines independently deciding to ground the MAX 8 and 9. And it finally culminated after a lot of pressure. Uh, eventually, uh, President Trump himself announced that the US would be grounding the 737 MAX. The FAA said they have some new information obtained from satellite data and investigators on the ground. We don't quite know what that is yet, but the 73 MAX is now effectively ground globally. So let's step back to Sunday, the 10th of March, where in Addis Ababa, Ethiopian flight 302 departed for Nairobi and crashed shortly after takeoff. John, I want to kind of bring you into the conversation to, to get your insight and a little bit about what investigators are looking at in that crash and kind of the initial developments there. Yeah, absolutely. So when Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 took off, what we know so far is that pilots reported some type of flight control issue. Precisely what that means, we do not know at, the, uh, at this point, but the aircraft climbed to about, check me here, guys, but I believe about 1,000, 1,500 feet above ground level. Addis Ababa is already very, very high above sea level. It's a notoriously high altitude airport, a challenging airport to fly in and out of for that reason. And the aircraft was apparent loss of control and crashed uh, just six minutes after takeoff. So immediately that, that kicked off a very urgent investigation to understand not this event, but whatever possible uh, link there might be to what went on in Indonesia on October 29th with the crash of Lion Air Flight 610. So certainly, as you put those both in context, you see two massive aberrations in an era of unprecedented aviation safety. And that is what is what really was precipitating the urgency by global regulators, by China, by Europe, by you know all over the world, ultimately culminating in the Canada and the U.S. earlier Wednesday to make a decision to stand down the fleet as more more details, scant as they may be at this point, have become available. So the crash investigation as it stands now, the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder are on their way from Otis to Paris where the French version, basically, of the, the NTSB or the UKAAIB will perform the recorder debrief or, or analysis. They'll be opened in Paris and, and we'll hopefully know more in the coming days once they reach there. They're on their way there now. The events of Sunday led quickly to Chinese regulators 
stopping the domestic fleet. They didn't necessarily outright ban 737 MAX flights in China right away, but they, they said that the domestic fleet was no longer allowed to operate. And that kind of, as John, you mentioned, and Jason, you've mentioned, kind of snowballed from there in a patchwork of airlines and and regulators kind of independently or sometimes jointly deciding that they were going to suspend flights. Cayman Airways became one of the first and Com Air, Ethiopian Airlines followed suit grounding their entire fleet. And then national regulators started saying, we're not going to allow the the MAX into our airspace, like Germany, Belgium, Australia, and, and eventually others the as EU well. as a whole. Right. And then the, the EU issued an emergency airworthiness directive. And today the FAA issued not an airworthiness directive, but an emergency order of prohibition. And, and John, I wanted to ask you about this. I'm not familiar with this instrument of regulation. I can't say that that I am as well. I think it's it's a rarely used tool, and which I think underscores the the, the seriousness of this situation. I mean, you know, certainly this has put a halt to the seven thirty seven Max operating in any kind of commercial fashion in U.S. airspace for the time being. And I think the, one of the interesting parts about the order itself, there are actually several interesting parts about the order itself, but one of the very interesting interesting parts was that. The order doesn't establish a criteria by which the airplane can actually be ungrounded, which I think is important to keep in mind. Because as we get deeper and deeper into this investigation and understand what happened to to Ethiopian flight and, and its potential connection to Lion Air, that as you look at that, there is going to be a, a regulatory criteria by which you say, okay, well, these airplanes are clear to fly again. And if that has not yet been established, a lot of that is sort of the, the most amorphous part uh, in terms of, okay, when the 787 was grounded back in 2013, no one knew how to get the 787 ungrounded. So Boeing went and design, you know, redesigned the battery containment, the venting system to get the airplane in a certified, certifiable in compliance condition back flying again. Right now, with these ongoing investigations, uh, we don't know what that criteria is going to be. Boeing has a software package that they're going to be rolling out no later than April to make some changes to the very controversial control law MCAS at the center of the Lion Air investigation. But beyond that, there needs to be a demonstration to the flying public, to regulators, to airlines that this airplane is is safe and safe to operate in, in, a, in a commercial fashion. Yeah, I think this has been a particularly different incident than most in the past where most people, they don't have any idea what aircraft they're flying on, what manufacturer it is. They, they simply don't care and they frankly don't need to know. In this case, now everybody knows what a 737 MAX is and they're looking out for it. I think Kayak announced today they're making a filter just for it on their website to, to help people avoid it. I don't think we're possibly going to get to the point where it's like the DC-10 where it, it will be kind of something Boeing never recovers from because this is, this is the 737. You can't stop manufacturing and it's the backbone of the aviation industry. So where do we even go from here? Well, I think that the other thing we need to keep in mind, and this is you take the micro context, which is what is on the, those flight data recorders that tells us what happened to Ethiopian flight 302. And then you look at the macro context. And I think this is something that's really important as the rest of the world was making its decisions around grounding the airplane before the US decided to. That this is an airplane that over four distinct generations and countless small updates has been pushed and pulled under grandfathered certification conditions and extreme cost pressures to deliver more and more and more with less, essentially with less and less and less over time. That creates ultimately, you know, makes the airplane a product of its environment, you know, in terms of how the airplane is, was engineered. And I think that when you look at that macro context, I believe it, it really does begin to explain why regulators globally were looking at taking the steps they were taking and effectively saying, not waiting for the FAA to make their, their very micro decision, but the micro data when the macro picture is, so, you take that in the context of a massive aberration in aviation safety in the last 20, 30, almost 40 years, it did require a, a swift uh, and decisive stand down of, 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 of what they could control. So let's take a walk down memory lane, I think. You posted a fantastic article yesterday about how the 7.3 MAX came to be and what the conditions were that necessitated its engineering and its rollout. 
take us a little bit through its history, why it came to be, and basically what role it's trying to serve. Well, Boeing didn't want to do the 737 MAX. I think that's really that's really important to remember. I mean, when, when, when the time finally came to do it, it was a bitter pill that they had to swallow and said, yep, it's the right decision for right now. We're going to go with it. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to, we're going to ride this horse the best we can. They're going to put on a brave face. And so Boeing changed on a dime. In 2011, the A320neo had, had just been launched. I believe the, the official launch of the 320neo was, I believe, December of 2010. So by the time things were getting, ramping up on 320neo orders, there's about a thousand order lead that Airbus had by the time Boeing actually made their announcement. And what what the, what forced their announcement was American Airlines in July of 2011. I, I was in Dallas when they made the announcement. It was an unbelievable thing. They said, you know, we're going to buy 460 Boeing and Airbus airplanes. That was 260 Airbuses and 200 Boeings. And it was a huge blow. And it forced Boeing to win that portion of that deal. They had to re-engine, they had to offer a re-engined version of the 737. The, the plans for a, a new airplane were out. Jim McNerney, CEO at the time, just a few months earlier, said, we're, yeah, we're probably going to do, do a new airplane. You know, we're, we're not done with our evaluations, but we're really, you know, our bias is away from a re-engined airplane. So under those conditions, under this, this you know, the fear of losing market share, fear of losing American, fear of losing uh, other airlines who were, you know, falling one by one for the A320neo, that they began this development. And so they made it work as best they could. And it, it required design compromises and creative solutions throughout the entire process to, to deliver a, a product that did what they said that it was going to do. But when you're dealing with, obviously, a, a design that has been, uh, like I said, pushed and pulled over this you know, period of time, you know, the, the risk is that, that you push too hard and you make modifications to an airplane that, that lead to unintended consequences. And I think to some extent, what we're seeing very much so with MCAS and its interaction with pilots is that an unintended consequence come to life? So those unintended consequences, I think what you're getting at here is that they had to put ever larger engines on the 7.3, which already had somewhat not great ground clearance. So they had to raise up the nose, I think, eight inches or so. And those much larger engines actually created their own lift. And that is what necessitated the need to have this MCAS system, where it basically is a system that when these engine, these huge engines on board basically create their own lift that makes the nose of the aircraft want to go up, which increases the likelihood of an aerodynamic stall that this system MCAS will push the nose back down when it detects that stall. And we're thinking that possibly could be what we're looking at with these two incidents. Well, certainly we could say definitively about Lion Air is that the system was malfunctioning. The system, sorry, I should say the system that fed data to MCAS, it was the it's the angle of attack system, which measures the angle of the of the wing in the air relative to the, I guess, the, the nose of the aircraft or the horizon. And so in whether or not the flow of air, it, you know, traveling at, a, at an appropriate speed for, to essentially maintain aerodynamic lift. And I'm sure I butchered that that description terribly. I mean, but, I, I think I, I just want to jump into kind of provided a, a description in one that everyone can kind of do at home. But when you're driving along, stick your hand out your window and then just kind of, you know, straighten level and then move your, move your fingertips up. And that's increasing the angle of attack of your hand and you'll see more lift on your hand, but you get to a certain point where you lose the lift in your hand. Not exactly the same, but kind of the, it's something everybody can do at home. I would say that's actually a, a perfect illustration of it. It's it's you know it, you people it's really be able to conceptualize it, but yeah, that's exactly it. So the angle of attack sensor tells you how high your well in this particular case your hand is relative to uh, relative to the, the flow of air. So if that is feeding bad data to the system and it's saying, oh my goodness, you're you're risking stalling, it's going to activate the MCAS system to give the, the pilot what is supposed to be a similar type of handling at, from the 737 next generation family is going to force the, the horizontal stabilizer to trim itself until that nose comes down. So the and system itself was working properly. It was the hardware that failed that fed faulty information to it that failed. Precisely. The question, obviously, on top of that, and this was as Boeing developed the what's called a fault tree. So essentially, so it's like it's like an if-then statement. So if there's going to be a, a problem 
that causes a catastrophic failure, a loss of loss of control, or potential loss of the aircraft. That there has to be certain, you know, things have to. Uh, you understand what that fault tree looks like. So on the one hand, the one branch says, okay, well, erroneous AOA data, angle of attack data is being fed to MCAS and it's not working. Well, that would necessitate a pilot reaction, and the pilot is trained to recognize a runaway trim situation, essentially a failure of the trim system. They know how to deactivate that. That is a memory item. You don't have, you don't have to run a checklist. That's part of the, the normal operation training for the 737. And ultimately, that would stop the behavior of, uh, of the MCAS system. And they looked at the probability of those two things happening at the same time. And that was satisfactory to the FAA. It was satisfactory to their own engineers that that would be an acceptable uh, implementation of the MCAS system and how it, and how it could potentially fail. The problem is, you know, a lot of what we saw with Lion Air was that um, the, the, immediately the flight preceding it that happened. The AOA data was feeding that data. The crew deactivated it. The the, the automatic trim system, and then on the next flight, six ten, the same thing happened. They didn't. Certainly, there was a, a, a lot of big controversy back in October and November about whether or not pilots were aware of the MCAS system. Uh, certainly, those that pointed to pilot error as a reason for for a, that, to, that exacerbated the response to the, the, the failed AOA data, you know, they contended, well, they didn't turn it off. They didn't respond to it properly. You know, certainly, I think when, uh, as we saw in the preliminary investigation out of Indonesia, that there are these different threads. You know, it's never just one thing in in an air accident. It's, it's you know, whether it's maintenance, the AOA system was, was faulty itself. The airplane did not have an AOA disagree indicator, which was optional on the 737. The crew was not aware of the MCAS system. Crew may have mishandled the response of the MCAS system and mis reading what was actually going on with with the airplane. So, you know, you, you see all these factors lining up, but then again, that's what it is. It's it's these 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 individual factors that that it's never just one thing. So, you know, you have to address each each piece of it in terms of a response to it. Certainly, we don't know yet what definitively happened in Ethiopia. But both of the the circumstances would point to a lack of altitude available to to recover. Right. Whatever, so whatever, whatever happened. There are a and few things I want, I want to dive into a bit more there. So uh, we do not know that the Ethiopian flight was a result of MCAS. We want to be super clear that it looks similar to Lion Air, but John, correct me if I'm wrong, we do not have any information that definitively points to MCAS as being the culprit. We do not, but I, I will say that, that certainly in the, in the FAA's reaction to grounding the airplane today, here Wednesday, that they said there was new satellite data reviewed overnight that pointed to essentially a, a potential for a link between these two, that there was data that caused them to activate this grounding order in their interest of being quote unquote data driven around this, that they had they had the data to make the choice to say, no, we're standing down the US fleet. So that's what's going to be unfolding over the next several several days but but that indication toward toward a possible link certainly was a big spur to to you know ultimately grounding the airplane despite the fact that we don't know definitively but again you know you just you go by what's what data is available and you you inch forward little by little in terms of the investigation and also in terms of the macro picture around how technology was implemented to make the max happen and you know here we are it was also very interesting to me in the uh, in the FAA statement today. It was the agency made the decision as a result of the data gathering process and new evidence collected at the site and analyzed today. And John, I was wondering if you might have any idea what that could possibly be. The FAA did not say what new evidence was analyzed today on site, but that was a very interesting part of the statement to my ears. You know, it, it is interesting, but it, I have to confess, I don't know, and I'm and I'm and I'm quite curious about it. I think that's something that that over the next couple of days we're going to probably get a better sense of that. Uh, I think that you know, I, I'm actually I just pulled up my, my notes in front of me, and the exact wording from the FAA grounding order was uh, newly refined data from satellite-based tracking of the airplane's flight path indicates some similarities between ET-302 and JT-610 accidents that warrant further investigation of the possibility a shared cause for the two incidents that needs to be better understood and addressed. So that, that is a major, when you combine what you just said about, about evidence found at the site, combine satellite data that was reviewed and refined in the last day or so, 
as it's become available, you, what you see is this this inch forward that again has escalated this to to a, a truly unprecedented level. Yeah. So they they did mention the satellite data, which was acquired from space based ADSB, which has more than likely has a bit more runtime than the ground based ADSB that uh, Flight Radar twenty four is currently using. But what doesn't sit well with me right now is that what we have seen from Flight Radar and other sources from the ground-based ADSB is we've already known since the crash immediately happened that the profiles look very, very similar. I don't know what they've seen in satellite, what additional data there is. But when people have already compared uh, Lion Air and Ethiopian, the profiles look very, very similar from basically as, as soon as we knew the aircraft had gone down. Well, I think the the they certainly have a greater level of granularity, and I think that I can't help but note that that today here we are. What you know, we're recording this on uh, the thirteenth of March, twenty nineteen. Exactly five years ago today, the world was learning about the satellite data that was left by MH three seventy, and I, I find it pretty amazing that that we're still in an, in an age where we're relying increasingly on hard to get data. For accident investigations, and I'm wondering whether or not you know that we're going to be looking at this in a in, in a different way. And I wonder whether or not Ariane's existence in its own right, and here we are five years later, and its assistance on this investigation actually is a, is a is an indirect outgrowth of what we saw five years ago. So I, I don't know what the level of granularity that that Ariane has. It, it's going what you see is the the increasing scope, <laughs> having to go to space to to begin to understand what is causing major catastrophic accidents that are still notably incredibly rare. So John, when we were discussing the the incident, the kind of correlation between the incident, not correlation, but uh, similarities, you mentioned the kind of some of the issues that investigators looked at with the Lion Air flight. And one of those was the, the we talked about angle of attack and, and the, the disagreement sensors. That not or not the disagreement sensors, but the disagreement displays indicator that is available to pilots. And if I'm not mistaken, that is the seven three seven three seven max. That's an optional function or or a feature that that is available, but doesn't necessarily come on all of the aircraft. Is that correct? That, that is true. That is true. There are, what I understand, uh, at least three layers of angle of attack indication and kind of protection. So you know, an airline can. Can get again. This is an at least not not exhaustive necessarily, but they can get a, a heads up display. So the glass display uh, that pilots look out, you know, projected with flight data um, directly in front of their faces. They don't have to look down. There's a PF. There's an angle of attack indicator on there. That's number one. Uh, number two, you can get the same PFD indicator on the primary flight display, which is the the, the big glass displays as they look down. Then the next piece is actually a disagree light, which says that there's the data going into each of the two different sensors is not correct. And all three of those are optional and they are available at uh, additional cost to, to operators. Lion Air being a low cost carrier and operating with the, you know, a, a very light level of optional equipment did not have any of those three. So what we saw was essentially a guardrail was not in place that had they, when they were taxiing out, investigators said that that they were the AOA indicators were already disagreeing by twenty degrees. So literally, one thought the airplane had the noses pointing in, in the air, and the other had the nose pointing well level because you know it was still on the ground and taxiing out. Had that been in place, it you know it, it, there would have been an alert. There would have been an indication on 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 the on the display saying there is a disagreement. That is not mandated by the FAA. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a delivery requirement. I, I I would be extremely surprised if when all of this is said and done, regardless of of what comes out of Ethiopia and that, that that investigation, whether or not that becomes a standard feature on all deliveries, all commercial aircraft deliveries. And I think there's going to be a number of hard questions that Boeing and its its chief regulator is going to have to answer around why that was optional in the first place. 
So I'm reading this statement issued by the Allied Pilots Association representing uh, 15,000 pilots from American Airlines, and they had a particularly interesting sentence that reads, two dozen 737 MAX aircraft in the American Airlines fleet are the only ones equipped with two AOA displays, one for each pilot, providing an extra layer of awareness and warning. And I interpret that sentence to mean that they are saying American is the only airline in the world of 737 MAX airline operators that actually has the AOA disagreement displays? Could that possibly be correct? On the, I don't, I, I do not know. Like I said, the PFD, so the, sorry, the indication on the PFD is an option, but if you have a HUD, you automatically, you have it looking straight, looking straight ahead also. But it, it still just strikes me, and I hope this is something that is investigated as particularly irksome that such a basic safety indication could somehow be an optional feature considering how how important MCAS has become recently. And I assume this is something that Boeing software update that's coming in April will address, but it just does not sit well with me that this kind of indication could be an optional safety feature. So I want to shift gears now and discuss a little bit about how the grounding of the 737 MAX unfolded both from a regulatory standpoint, which, which I think is, is something a bit unprecedented, but also from, I guess, call it an optical standpoint or consumer standpoint. And I guess we can kind of jump into the regulatory standpoint, which is that I can't recall a, a single instance where a hodgepodge of national regulators, supranational regulators, and individual airlines all at various points in time, decided that they were going to stop. Yeah. I mean, I my memory only goes back so far. And I feel like the last time this possibly could have been applicable is with the DC-10. But I, I don't know of any point in history where there was such a hodgepodge of airlines and regulators and governments and even the president of the United States saying this aircraft is going to be grounding. Grounded, it was just it optically, in my opinion, this was horribly done that to have airlines in different countries on different days of the week kind of just ground it from their own country and then the airspace. It was It's a total mess and it was handled really poorly all around, I think. I think there's been a bit of a credibility hit towards the FAA. But John, I'm interested to get your opinion. Is there anything like this? Is there any precedent from this in the past? No. There isn't. I mean, the last time, so when when the eight seven was grounded, I think the sequence of events is important to, to remember. The there's a first battery incident in, in early January, and then I, if I recall correctly, it was about uh, seven to ten days later. Uh, the second happened on an ANA seven eight seven. The first was on a JAL seven eight seven in Boston, and in the second incident, aircraft made emergency landing. Passengers and crew exited via slides, and both airlines grounded their fleets. And so the first two airlines, the biggest operators of, of the 787, JAL and ANA said, nope, we're standing down. Almost immediately after that, the FAA, FAA ordered the grounding as well. And it, it was a it was a very, very – it was swift, but they what they saw was the immediate link around the battery uh, incidents that you know, there's a chance that this could bring down the aircraft if – if uncontrolled. But that sequence, again, was was the airline making the decision, and then, then the FAA and other regulators followed shortly thereafter. In this particular case, there was, it took guess, 36 hours, or actually it was actually longer than 36 hours, probably, you know, a full three days here to get to the point where they had enough information to say, send it down. But Here's the here's the problem. And this is the sequence of events. This is this is a factual sequence of events that that as Boeing announced today that they were the ones who who recommended the stand down. That was what their statement said, and that the FAA and the NTSB agreed with them around the recommendation to stand down the airplane. Yesterday, Dennis Mullenberg, Boeing CEO, was on the phone with President Trump, saying asking him not to ground the airplane. So regardless, Bo- Boeing was asking for something for the opposite to happen yesterday. So here we are, you know, 24 hours later, and there is a 180 degree difference. So that tilt, uh, that pressure, because that's that's what the phone call was. It was a request. Ultimately, you know, had other regulators saying, well, well, no, you know, out of an abundance of caution, out of the incredible aberration that something like this is 
in an era again in an era of 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 aviation safety that you stand this thing down and you take that precaution so you know certainly the FA they wanted to be data driven they wanted to see that there was a link between the two accidents potentially but certainly again micro versus macro the micro comment uh, the micro data being what's on the recorders the macro is okay let's look at the the pressures that that this design has been under over over years and say okay look at the statistical aberration that it is and take action so we're entering a a period i think of of great uncertainty until we know much more about the specific events sequence of events that led to the crash of ethiopian 302 we have a global fleet of around 350 aircraft, nearly 400 aircraft that are no longer flying with 50 some operators. And until, and as we discussed, you know, a few minutes ago, we don't know what it will take to get the fleet back in the air. So, Jason, I mean, you're much more in tune to the to the commercial side of things than I am. What do you see as the the effect on you know operations? What, what if who's impacted here and and what are the workarounds? So operationally, the biggest operator of the seven eight uh, sorry seven three seven max right now is Southwest. They have approximately thirty five aircraft, and they're also dealing a, a, with a bit of a crunch for, with fleet availability as a whole as they're kind of going through a tiff with their mechanics right now. So they have a, a large number of uh, NGs out of service as well. So Southwest is going to see quite a bit of impact. American is the second largest operator, I believe, of the 73 I, I just want to point out that as a side note, in, in a normal episode of AvTalk, the story of Southwest versus their mechanics would have been a much larger portion of the show. In this particular week, we'll just have to leave it there and come back to it's it in another episode. It's a side note today. Yeah. So American will be able to absorb it, but they're also dealing with issues with their NG fleet. They've had um, a bunch of NGs grounded due to um, some inspection issues with refurbished aircraft. Air Canada has had to cancel a number of transatlantic flights that operate with the 7.3 MAX. Norwegian is actually substituting in the 787 that they somehow found available, and they're sending that to Stewart, New York, combining that with the Providence, Rhode Island flight. Um, but most of the other airlines, uh, United, the Chinese airlines, Goal is actually borrowed in Delta A330, I think. They'll be able to absorb a good number, if not all of the flights, into their other aircraft and there won't be much of an impact there will be some impact with, with some like i mentioned with air canada where they just do not have another aircraft that can operate that flight but generally speaking there are only three to four hundred seven three max aircraft out there in the world so it, it's not like we're talking about thousands and thousands of aircraft so airlines will figure this out but it's um Keep an eye on your booking. I have a flight booked on Iceland Air with the 7.3 MAX 8 at the beginning of April. I'm looking to see what they're eventually going to swap that out to if this grounding is prolonged. But operationally, a lot of airlines will absorb this into the rest of their fleet. I don't foresee a huge impact. What's interesting to me are, are the airlines that have really started rebuilding, very small airlines that have basically started rebuilding their fleets based on the 737 max I'm, I'm looking at you know like mauritania has you know 25 percent of their four aircraft fleet yeah i mentioned the, them specifically you know, yesterday I, I said what is it going to take to get mauritania to ground their 73 max because like you said is literally 25 percent of their entire operating fleets and lo and behold they didn't operate their 73 max today so they actually beat the u.s to grounding the max even though they heavily rely on that one single aircraft. Yeah. And Fiji, which operates, I think, two at this point. Uh, know, SCAT in, in Kazakhstan. SCAT, yep. Has one, I believe. Yep. And Comair took delivery of theirs just before grounding them. Right. So, so fortunately, I mean, the, the 7.3 MAX is, is just being introduced into a bunch of airlines right now, so it's not a huge operational impact. Jet Airways has been mentioned a number of times, but they their 7.3 MAXs were already grounded before the Ethiopian crash because of financial issues. Um, Which, again, in a normal episode, would have been would a much have been larger portion of topic. the episode. Yes. yes. Iceland Air only has a couple in operation. They'll they'll throw some seven fives on the on the routes. Really, the biggest impact I, I think is indeed going to be 
Southwest, since they're the largest operator right now. So if you are booked on a Southwest flight in the coming days, definitely check your flight information to see what is happening with that. So before we leave this, I want to just kind of give some some things that we should be looking out for in the near future. And as we wrap up our discussion with John, I just want to note that the last passenger carrying 737 MAX is on final approach to Newark. Southwest flight 2569 is is about uh, five minutes from landing. The only other 737 MAX aircraft in the air are ferry flights that are either returning from an outstation back to their home base or, or to a, to another location where they will wait out the grounding. Right. So this, the last passenger a, aircraft uh, is about to land. This was a Southwest Transcon flight. Those do exist, Oakland to Newark. And uh, John mentioned before we started recording, actually, that this flight actually has uh, in-flight Wi-Fi and on top of that, live TV streaming. So the passengers on this flight are probably aware that they are on an aircraft that is effectively banned globally and they're on the last flight that is still operating. That's got to be weird. Yeah. I I mean, I would feel comfortable on them. Let let me, and I will say this, I would feel comfortable flying a 737 MAX at this point. It's still got to be weird, but yeah, I I, I would But it would would be weird knowing that when you land, that plane can't take off again. Right. Like it's it's fine, it's fine. We're in the air. It, it's safe. Just it's never not allowed to take off again because it won't be yeah. safe. It's a, an inter- an interesting stasis to be in. But what I want to do is kind of get some last thoughts from John and, and some things that we want to be looking out for. The most important thing, as far as any crash investigation is concerned, is certainly the the analysis of the flight data and cockpit voice recorders, which are they're on their way to Paris for inspection and analysis, and, and that'll be something that we're certainly following very closely. The other are kind of any continued updates from the FAA especially as the the certifying body of the 737 and then additionally any updates from from other authorities and regulators when they see the 737 MAX coming back into the air. John, is there anything else that people following this would be wise other than to you know subscribe to the air current and read your reporting? What else should people be looking out for? First off, thank you for that. I appreciate the endorsement there. I think one thing that is tremendously important. And this should not, and I don't think this can be overstated really, that any threat to the 737 is a threat to Boeing's very existence. Taken to its extreme, if this is not handled in a way that gets resource confidence and trust in the airplane, then this airplane is the lifeblood of Boeing. It pays for everything. It keeps the lights on. And the effect of that, certainly there's, we're, we're in a duopoly and there aren't a lot of choices that airlines have. But in terms of the seriousness of this, the 737 in the context of the Boeing company, the, 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 the large US, you know, the United States of America's largest single exporter relies on this airplane to stay alive. So getting this right, there is almost no margin for error here as this airplane is brought back into service and brought back into service in a way that its operators, global regulators, and ultimately the flying public have confidence in. This has been a thoroughly enlightening conversation with the Air Currents Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer. John, I want to thank you for being very gracious with your time today, and we'll certainly check in with you in, in the near future as we learn more. Thank you so much for joining us today. John, thank you as always. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment to discuss the situation in Indian Pakistan, an update from the National Transportation Safety Board on Atlas Air Flight 3591, and a few other things that have happened in the past couple of weeks. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. It's time to discuss some of the other things that have happened in the past few weeks. It feels like this began forever ago, but Pakistani airspace is still closed to most overflights. We're into the, I think, 14th or 15th day of this closure. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're definitely into the third full week of closure to most overflights. 
Yeah. A quick update. Yeah, uh, yeah go ahead. I, I mean, I, I'm just going to say I, I still don't quite understand what is going on here. I, I just know that Pakistani airspace is closed to most overflights and, and is causing some pretty crazy routings to happen around it. Yeah. I mean, it, so the overflights, the Pakistani and Indian airspace, both of those pieces of airspace are very heavily used to the tune of about 400 flights a day for overflights transiting from mostly from Europe to to Southeast Asia. So think flights going from from Europe to Thailand or, or, or Vietnam or, or Singapore or or even beyond to, to places like uh, Australia sometimes, depending on from where in Europe they're coming. But those routes are currently closed. The the overflight routes that are still open or that have been reopened and reopened for uh, a few days now are the the routes that take aircraft from the Gulf airports, so Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Kuwait, places in that region, and kind of take them up to up into Chinese airspace. Uh, so flights to Beijing, Shanghai, and, and places like that. Those routes are, are still available, but there are all sorts of restrictions that we've been following for certain flights, certain airports, certain flights going to certain airports can't fly through certain airspace to get to other airspace. So they have to go through the third airspace. And that's what ended up happening to a Thai Airways flight that was flying from Karachi home to Bangkok. They got caught in Nodum Jail, basically. Yeah, we were watching this flight take off, and uh, the the way you get from Pakistan to Thailand is not by going west. You go east, but east was not immediately available for this flight, and air traffic control guided them out over the sea, and then they just kind of started doing circles. And what I'm told, I, I've talked to uh, a couple pilots about this, is basically they were given instructions to just keep turning left and they weren't instructed to hold over a specific point but just keep turning left and high winds over the sea kind of drifted them back to the east so they kept making these like uh roller coaster style loop-de-loops out back towards so pakistan it looked like the the spiralizer yeah like exactly a, like a kid's toy it was pretty damn confusing because you looked at it and said what the hell are they doing and eventually i guess they figured out their routing they they headed back west and it looked like they were going to divert to Dubai but they ended up turning back east again and by the time they had really passed south of Karachi where they started from it was already like two hours into the flight. Yeah so what ended up happening is they and it's still unclear to me why they departed on the routing that they did given that this information was available to them at the time of departure. Uh, so that that's part is still unclear to me. But what happened was is because flights from Pakistan cannot fly directly into Indian airspace, they have to go through a third airspace, a, a third country. And so what they had planned to do was fly through the Muscat FIR and then into Indian airspace. Because of all of the traffic that has been moving into the Muscat FIR, they, they've taken a bulk of that overflight traffic because it's basically moved south uh, to avoid Pakistan. They said, we're closed. You can't come this way. You, you can't fly from Pakistan to Muscat. We're not going to allow Yeah. So this seems like the kind of thing that they should have arranged before they took off and delayed takeoff because I can't imagine how much fuel they wasted holding. Well, I mean, it's, it's not even a delaying a takeoff. I mean, the, the, what they ended up doing was flying through Iranian airspace to get around the not going from Pakistan to Muscat, the the FIR. So they flew into the Tehran FIR, then they flew into Muscat, then they got back on track into uh, the, the Mumbai FIR, and, and on now, they went. What did they call it? A tactical rerouting? Yeah. So there were a couple of notums that, that the Muscat FIR issued. One was that they're closing the entry point, the, the waypoint to, to traffic coming out of Pakistan. And the other was that they said that aircraft will be subject to tactical rerouting, which basically means you can file a flight plan, we'll do our best, but because we're dealing with so many extra planes, you may end up flying further. And so it was basically a, a, a notice that aircraft should tank extra fuel just in case they end up flying further, which, which I mean, I, I'm not sure if the, the Thai 747 needed 
extra fuel for this particular route or if it just had enough to begin with. But they eventually got home, uh, but a few hours late. I still don't know what this whole airspace scuffle is about, but hopefully they figure this out soon and end this. I mean, what's what's most, I guess, confounding to me is the the daily... So there's the standing notum that gets updated basically once a day that says Pakistan airspace is closed to, to general overflight traffic. Here are some restrictions. These are the airports that are available, et cetera, et cetera. And they just bump it back by 24 hours every day. And it's very unclear to me at this point why there have been, you know, political explanations and, and you know, military explanations that, that are less than satisfying to my ears. They don't necessarily explain the entire situation. Granted, I'm not uh, an India-Pakistan conflict expert. This all began out of rising tensions and, and aircraft that were shot down. But military later, aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. That's an important point to make. And so that all began and tensions seemed to have eased, but here we are with nobody, you know, nobody really budging. Pakistan the other day, this is Wednesday the 13th, I believe it was the 11th, the 10th or 11th, said, uh, we tried to open up some airspace and, and let flights go through, but India said no. It, it was very a passive aggressive notum, which is very interesting to, to read. And, and so India put out their own notum that said, no, you can't. And, and here we sit. So things continue to to be maddeningly complex for flights that are flying basically just west of Pakistan to India that have to go, you know, way out of the way to make make it to their destinations. What else happened in the last two weeks that felt like an eternity? Well, the update that we have today, yesterday and today, is to the Atlas Air uh, 3591 crash, the 767 cargo aircraft in uh, just outside of Houston. The NTSB issued an investigative update, which isn't the final report. Uh, it's just a, this is what we've learned, FYI. And, and so yesterday they came out and described uh, in, in some detail the final moments of the flight and some of the, the flight control issues that the aircraft was experiencing in there. And so what happened was is that um, at about a few minutes before the aircraft crashed, they had leveled off uh, at about 6,200 feet. They began a slight climb to 6,300 feet. The aircraft began to encounter uh, small vertical accelerations. These are the NTSB words right now. Small vertical accelerations consistent with the airplane entering turbulence. Shortly after, when the airplane's indicated airspeed was steady at 230 knots, the engines increased to maximum thrust, and the airplane pitch increased to about 4 degrees nose up. The airplane then pitched nose down over the next 18 seconds to about 49 degrees in response to nose down elevator deflection. The stall warning, uh, stick shaker, did not activate. A and that is an updated investigative update from the NTSB, which the yesterday, the language was not in response to nose down elevator deflection. It said in response to nose down control column input, which was very distressing in possible implications. Yeah. They, they didn't um, so much say why they think there was nose down column input, but we were pretty much all inferring nothing good from that statement. Right. And and so today there was a revision to that statement in response to nose down elevator deflection, which certainly changes big the, difference. Yeah, exactly. It changes the the ideas behind what may or may not have happened. And so that's an ongoing investigation certainly, but it looks like investigators are, are well on their way to, to figuring out what happened. Now comes obviously the, the more difficult question of uh, why it happened. And, and I'm sure they're looking at the wreckage as best they can now. The other incident that happened over the past two weeks was one in which thankfully no one was injured, but a rather stark photograph, series of photographs came out of it in northern Maine. Yeah, this one is, uh, was it Persk Isle, Maine? I'm sure we'll get some hate mail about my pronunciation I, of that. I will say, I will say, uh, Presque, Presque Isle. Presque, Presque Isle, uh, whatever but, it is. Uh, well, well, if you're from Maine, uh, if you're a Mainer, please uh, podcast at FR24. Is it Mainer? 
Uh, yeah, that that one I'm getting right. Mainite? They're Mainers. Mainite? No, they're Mainers. Okay. They're Mainers. Well, if they're that, Mainer, that one I actually know. Uh, you probably saw in the news that a <laughs> United Express operated by Commute Air, I believe, yes. E140 flew into your lovely airport there. E145. Went off the runway into a snowbank that was probably damn near ice from what it looked like, and the landing gear ended up Somewhere it's not supposed to, which is lodged between the rear-mounted engine and the fuselage, which, if you're familiar with an E-145, is, I think, not where the landing gear goes, is it? Definitely not. No. That is uh, certainly not the location where the landing gear is supposed to be. You don't want your left main landing gear between your left engine and and your fuselage, especially... Um, you know, after encountering a, a runway overrun. Yeah, so that looked uh, pretty terrible, but thankfully no one was injured. Um, that aircraft might be written off. I don't know. It's an E-145, so who cares at the end of the day? There's an, we eliminate one, another will take its place from the desert. But yeah, that, uh, thankfully no one hurt, but it looked, just looks out, looked ridiculous. It, I guess they hit a snowbank just in the right way that it sheared off the landing gear, and... Uh, I, I've never and, seen anything quite like it that. Flipped up into the engine. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, in in all in all seriousness, it's, it's probably a very good thing that it went up in and wedged itself where it did, rather than hitting the engine. So that's uh, that's a, I think a lucky break there. So this has been an incredibly heavy episode, one in which I, I think we've gotten an amazing amount of information, especially from, from our conversation with John. There's a lot to, to kind of sift through over the next week or, or two. In our next episode, hopefully we'll know much more about uh, what happened in Ethiopia and, and the fate of the, the 737 MAX fleet. But I do want to end on a, a positive and, and avgeeky note just to, I don't know, leave, leave with something. What do you got here? Uh, Where are you going? And, I'm going I'm going to I'm going to the UK and I'm going to say the Landor 747 that British Airways rolled out last oh, week. Oh yeah, it did. Is just a beautiful beautiful airplane. It just looks right. Like it belongs on that aircraft probably because that aircraft is so old that it originally wore that livery before it was retro. You are correct, sir. Which is pretty amazing. But this is the third in the series of British Airways retro liveries. Our first was BOAC. Then we got BEA. Sorry. And now we have Landor. So we have one more to go. And which one do you think it's going to be? I, I hope it's Negus, but I hope they pick one of the wacky uh, World Tales from World Tales. from a little while ago, like what whichever one people hated the most. Because I I love All of those. Them? Take your pick. I think they were fascinating, but I, I, I mean, really were, hope they, they were, go with one of those. People really, for some reason, just didn't like them. But I I don't even I don't even know where where that visceral reaction comes from. But the, the Landor livery does look really sharp. It just looks like it belongs on that aircraft. Yeah, so that the registration on that, and we'll, we'll toss it in the show notes, is Golf Bravo November Lima Yankee, G-B-N-L-Y. So we will put a link to that one in the show notes so that everybody can can take a look at that. Episode 53, a, a full one, one I hope that everyone is a bit more informed about the situation. I know I am. Uh, it's always good to talk to John, and we'll certainly have to have him back in a future episode as things progress. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and thank you all for listening.